Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Art, whether it's great paintings or sculpture or music, uh, is often uh, a casualty of war. There's no reason to believe that Ukraine will be an exception. And uh, I know people may think that art uh, is uh, frivolous uh, matter, subordinate matter, when we're looking at a humanitarian crisis, as we're seeing in Ukraine. But art remains an essential part of the humanity of a culture, of a people. And uh, it would do us, do us well to take a look at some of the art that uh, embodies the uh, heritage of Ukraine. My guest is Elizabeth Lev. She's an art historian living in Rome, where she leads tours of Rome uh, and beyond. She also delivered a TED Talk on the unheard story of the Sistine Chapel. She's the author of How Catholic Art Saved the Faith and a new book called The Silent Night, A History of St. Joseph as Depicted in Art. Liz, good to have you back here. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Let me go to the first thing that I think many people would, would ask. How can you talk about art at a time like this, art in time of war? Why is it important not to let go of this uh, area of our cultural concern? I, I think we can. I think there are two reasons why art is uh, important, even in moments when we're facing grave humanitarian crises. And one has to do with the fact that, especially in the case of Ukraine, of Ukraine uh, art is a form of creating a national identity. I mean, art really it draws people together. It is in many ways a a symbol of what it means to be Italian or French or Ukrainian or American. And and I think the other reason is that art is, a, is an expression of the best of what human beings can be. We've all, In the history of art, art has been a way to express our better side, our hopeful side, our more beautiful side. Mm-hmm. And I think in moments of conflict, it's important that we be able to remember that about ourselves. Even during the Cold War, we had plenty of cultural exchanges with the uh, Bolshoi Ballet. Uh, we had art uh, from country to country. The, the, that, that, again, shows that there's this belief that in art we see our better selves and that uh, uh, we can also reduce uh, potential animosity between nations when we learn to appreciate one another's art, wouldn't you say? I would. I would also say there's a flip side to this. I mean, when you think of, uh, when we think of, for example, World War II, or or better yet, even Napoleon, the looting of art really yes. was a way of humiliating a nation. And then in the case of ISIS, how many ancient, ancient sites and works of art did they destroy, yeah. really trying to destroy and eradicate uh, the presence of particularly Christians from the Middle East. So art is, on one hand, a way that we hold up and unify people, but the destruction of art and the willful looting and, and taking of, of another nation's identity is a way of really striking at the heart of a people. Yeah. Uh, this is a little bit off topic, but I'll throw, you, I'll throw it to you anyways, because in the history of uh, the Christian West, there's there's also been at times an iconoclastic streak, the the fear that art in some, somehow the rendering of graven images is a an affront to God. Uh, in some cases, it's limited to representational art in a religious setting. In other cases, it's art entirely, 
how do you, as a, a committed Catholic and one who uh, loves uh, the world of art, how do you respond to the iconoclast that says no graven images? Well, the question of the no graven images, uh, particularly in the very, very earliest period, it, it gets reinterpreted. I mean, we can even find the, the, the Jewish people, who are the, 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 the ones who first received the Ten Commandments, actually have different interpretations of what it means mm-hmm. to have no graven images. Does that remove paintings? Does that remove... So I think my in, in the sort of the broader question of iconoclasm, um, I think these different cases of iconoclasm, they each have their own different form. One is simply a destruction of the images of saints, the images of things that Catholics venerated. That's what right. happened during the Protestant Reformation. When we look at uh, the, the original iconoclast controversy, it had to do with a fear that perhaps people had fallen too much in superstition, had angered the Lord. There was a real sort of sense of, of, of concern about uh, losing territory to Islam, which had uh, no images and seemed more powerful. And then we have the modern iconoclasm, where putting forward the ugly, putting forward the distasteful, really ruining or, or deliberately destroying the mm. sense of beauty, is the type of iconoclasm that I would say we live in today, yeah. where we don't really have a sense of what is beautiful, we don't really have a sense of what is art, which is you know, just as serious and perhaps even more damaging. Very good. Uh, Let's go back to Ukraine in particular now. Let's, uh, let us know what it is. Most of us don't really know the art of Ukraine. We don't know the particular work. We don't know uh, much about Ukrainian culture. But uh, why don't you let us know some of the works of architecture and art that need to be preserved? Well, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us to really explore that and really learn about the very special contributions on the part of these people. The bulk of their the the most dramatic, glamorous, wonderful works really began after the conversion to Christianity on the part of Ukraine. Ukraine in uh, the very, very end of the 10th century, and there we see a series of spectacular churches. And among them, the queen of the churches, the jewel in the crown, is the Church of Santa Sofia in Kiev, which is a magnificent structure, which amazingly enough is still there, despite additions, changes, etc., etc., for 1,000 years. Wow. So that's one of the, that's an amazingly wonderful thing. We can keep St. Peter's that long. Um, the um, the fact is that uh, there are also a many. So I think it's interesting that the the bulk of the really important objects, the things that are the most uh, precious, are indeed churches. And, and I think it really is something that speaks to the fact that Ukraine has been invaded over and over and over and over again. That the gathering place, literally the place where people are gathered together, these are the sites which really are the most the most uh, significant. As a matter of fact, one of the ways that people classify these sites are the one, uh, is by which sites are on the list, the so-called UNESCO list, which is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, which, puts, which, which, which designates World Heritage Sites. And in fact, in Ukraine, there are 
six or seven, there's seven World Heritage Sites. Um, most of them are cultural, meaning they're man-made, and one is natural. And so I think it's very interesting to see that, that the bulk of these sites really tend to be these monasteries or these churches. However, they have amazing things. They have these wonderful icons. There's actually one little uh, sort of specialized museum where they have teeny, 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 tiny engravings, like literally uh, uh, an engraving of the, the three wise men approaching a pyramid inside the eye of a needle, which is kind of cute to get a camel in the eye of the needle. But they have, they have really, and it's a whole art form of working in miniatures, but these teeny, 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 on the head of a pin, um, literally angels dancing on the head of a pin, um, the uh, really amazing works. And then, of course, some, some of the greatest icons, one of the greatest icon collections is also in, uh, in Ukraine. So, there, no, there is a great deal uh, to be concerned about, to be worried about, but mostly, mostly the dispersal or the destruction of these these very beautiful things made by human hands that really speak to the identity of a nation. Yeah, very good. I, you know, at, at a time like this too. I mean, I we talk about the works of art that are, uh, you know, the four thousand or so icons that are uh, in that uh, museum. Um, but I, but those who paint icons are in jeopardy here too. <laughs> you, exactly. You know, you you lose you lose. Uh, I mean, I don't know what it would be like to have to go through uh, the kind of shelling, uh, the, the missiles knocking out apartment buildings and maternity hospitals, and uh, no doubt some churches along the way eventually. Um, and then, as an artist, to have to come back and try to rebuild. Assuming that you've won the war, so-called, you go back to your work. Um, it's got to change the way an artist does his work. So I think you have a very good point there. I think it returns back to your question about iconoclasm earlier. In the 8th century, the ninth century, icon writers had to escape from the East. They've had to run before, yeah. because iconoclasm went after not only the objects, but those who were dedicated to writing icons. And they came to the West, and they were nurtured in the West, and then they uh, returned home. And here, here we find an interesting, interesting point, though. What is an icon but a prayer? Yeah. It's a really lovely way to reflect on it. They may have to be bombed out of their houses. They may have to leave their work. But when they return to it, what do they return to doing? They return to creating visual prayer. And so I think that is the great hope, the fact that this that particular art form, that particular art form, which mm-hmm. there are 4,000 amazing exemplars in the Andrzej Gietzky Museum, that that is the art of prayer. And I think that's a wonderful way to think of Ukraine facing these terrible moments. That's an important point, and that is that uh, icons are a very different form of creation. Uh, there's a those who paint icons often make it clear they aren't just uh, creating a painting, as you say. They're uh, forming a prayer. What is the difference um, aesthetically between an icon? and another work of representational art. 
So, for example, Western art, the art that most people associate with Michelangelo, Caravaggio, that is an art that allows for a lot more personal interpretation on the part of the artist. And actually, there are times when that goes wrong. The the problem is that the West, it's not a problem, but one of the things about Western art is that they gamble on the artist. And sometimes the artist interprets something amazing, like Leonardo's Last Supper, and sometimes the artist interprets something in a way that's a bit of a head-scratcher. When one deals with icons, icons follow the prescribed prescribed ideas of how to approach the sacred. So it has a lot more of a sense of rituals, a lot more sense of, of, of really almost... Um, uh, almost more of a dogmatic format, mm-hmm. so that while the individual hand or the individual eye may change the the sort of the lines, the the, the softness, the hardness, the grouping, the ideas remain. That the, there's a sort of continuity in that art that I think is very very helpful and important. Very good, Liz. We're out of time, but I'd love to have you back for the new book. Uh, so we'll give you a call, okay? Wonderful. Look forward to it. Thanks okay. So much. Liz Lev, uh, again, has an outstanding book, How Catholic Art Saved the Faith. But she's got a new book, which uh, we haven't gotten our hands on yet. It's called The Silent Night, A History of St. Joseph as Depicted in Art.